0: Well, today I'm going to talk about the Buddha. Go figure. (laughs) And a few weeks ago, I posted something on my Facebook page about who is the Buddha. And it got a lot of response. Apparently, people aren't quite sure who or what the Buddha was. So hopefully today I can clarify that for you, and you can go home semi-enlightened. So according to archaeological evidence, there seems to have been someone about 2,600 years ago who sort of was like Siddhartha Gautama or the Buddha. So there is some historical evidence that he may have existed and probably did. Now one of the things that really made me feel good when I started to read the story of the Buddha is that he was a human being. He was a guy, you know, and, and he wasn't divinely inspired. He had a problem. <laughs> and the problem was he had to suffer because he was human and wanted things to be different than they are. So he was brought up in a really nice palace. I think of it like Paulus Verdes, you know, and <laughs> he's just sort of hanging out there and everything is just the way it's supposed to be. And then one day, his charioteer says, Chana, Chana to Siddhartha, hey, let's go visit L.A. and see what it's like. (laughs) So they did, and they got really depressed. (laughs) The first thing he saw as Siddhartha in L.A. was a really sick person. You know, and we got a lot of them. Of course, they're everywhere and hopefully some of them have health insurance. But one of the things Siddhartha hadn't seen was really sick people. His father didn't want him to see that. And I couldn't fathom that at first. It didn't make any sense to me. And then I thought about what our culture, society, city, state does for us. It really prevents us from seeing a whole lot of sick people because we put them in hospitals. You know, until they get better. So sometimes you see sort of sick people. They're coughing and sniffling. But the really sick ones we really don't get to see. And he saw them that day. And it jolted him. How could this be? Then they continued through the seats of the city and they saw this really old guy. I qualify now. (laughs) And the old guy was all wrinkled. He didn't have much energy. He was sort of bent over and... And Siddhartha looked at this old guy and said, what's wrong with him? Is he sick? Why don't they take him and fix him? (laughs) Well, Chana said to him, you can't fix old age. You just sort of have to live with it. And so that's what he did. He looked at that and said, wow, one day I'm going to get sick, really sick. And one day I'm going to get old, really old. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm getting sort of bummed, he might have said to Chana. And then they continued through the streets of L.A. And they saw this dead person just sort of like lying there. And Siddhartha said, wow, that guy's really old, isn't he? And Chana said, no, 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 it's it's worse than that. He's dead. And everybody that is born has to die. Wow, Siddhartha said, everybody that's born has to die? And I say to myself, the seven billion people now will one day be dead. Abraham Lincoln was giving a talk, and it was a really good talk, and he was happy that he gave the talk, and he sat down. He had a little tear in his eye. And Mary, his wife, said, Abe, that was a great talk. Why are you crying, man? Abe said, well, you know, I looked out at the audience And I realized a hundred years from now, we'd all be dead. It made me sad. So, sickness, old age, death, no answer. Okay, Siddhartha was thinking about this and he said, maybe, maybe there is an answer. And as they went back to the palace, they saw this guy. He's dressed in white. He's serene he's accepting he seemed to be okay with all the suffering Siddhartha had just seen and Siddhartha said to Chana why is that guy so peaceful and Chana said because he's a yogi he's a spiritual mendicant he's he's seeking the answers to life on the inside not on the outside and I think at that point it planted a seed in Siddhartha that the spiritual path was the one he wanted to take not the political path to take over the family business being the king so he needed to get married you know everybody needs to get married so <laughs> so he got married married his cousin it was convenient it was arranged And then they were married for a while, and then all of a sudden, she ended up with child. And I'm sure Siddhartha wondered how that happened. <laughs> and then on the very night his first child was born, he left them. He left his wife and his child. Some people say, man, he was a deadbeat dad. How could he have done that? Well, I think Siddhartha had a bigger, a, a bigger goal in mind not simply to be a good husband and a good father, but to find the end to suffering. So he kissed his wife and child goodbye that night and said, I'll be back when I find the answer. Yeah, and he came back. That's part of the story. So he leaves, and for six years, he does all this ascetic practice and yoga and meditation and eats one meal a day, and he almost died, and then... He's just trying to work all this this stuff out, you know. And I imagine in my mind that one night he went to the top of the hill and he appealed to the gods of India. All those gods, they had a lot of them. Come on, end human suffering. Can't you do it? Don't you want to do it? And all he heard was silence, nothing. So he said, I'm going to do it. He said, I'm going to figure out why humans suffer. And I'm going to see if there's an answer to that. And if there is, I'm going to share it with the world. So after six years, he figured it out. He found the answer. And he went from Siddhartha to the Buddha. Like Jesus to Christ. Now the word Buddha means one who is awake. So all of us, theoretically, could become a Buddha if we wake up. But the problem is, according to the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, there's only one Buddha at a time because the Buddha discovered it himself and all of us have heard the teachings and we practice what they told us was their vehicle to liberation and we become arahants. We have the same enlightenment that the Buddha did except we had help and he didn't and that's why we designate him as the Buddha now he comes back and he starts to teach his first audience was five people I had an audience of six I was doing better than the Buddha in some of my talks (laughs) and he said I have discovered four universal truths let me share them with you And the five ascetics were sitting there man tell us we've been practicing our whole life and we're not there yet so the Buddha said, the first thing I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. The five ascetics said, yeah, right on, man, we know that. <laughs> so the second thing I discovered, he said, is why it's unsatisfactory. Because of the desire and craving and a thirst that can't be quenched. An attachment to the good and an aversion to the bad. And we're always holding and pushing and we never get it right. Because we're born with original ignorance, not original sin. We don't see the world the way it really is. And we have to wake up. We need that wisdom necessary, that discernment necessary to see the world. So they're listening to him now, and they go, and then he says, third truth, I found the answer. Ma, their ears lit up, and they went, okay, okay, now we're getting there. I found the answer to suffering, and I call the answer to suffering nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirth. Now, those last two probably don't really inspire us, but those ascetics, they go, yeah, the end of rebirth, because they had reincarnation. And every time they were reborn or reincarnated, they got to go through all the suffering again. They had to bury their parents and pets if they had them. Sometimes their children died before they did and they buried them. It was sad. Sometimes they didn't have enough food to eat and they were hungry or no place to sleep and they slept outside. And every lifetime they could remember was ultimately unsatisfactory. So to hear that there's an answer to reincarnation, that they'll never have to go through it again, and it's not non-existence according to me, they were excited. So the Buddha said, well, let me tell you how I did it because I can't do it for you. I can't make you enlightened. I can't, I can't tell you anything except what I did to achieve my freedom. Okay, so they're listening. Okay. okay, so you can't do it for us. We'll listen to what you did and we'll do it our way so we can achieve our liberation. And it goes like this. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those eight path factors are a way to have a journey that leads us to our eventual freedom. Now, I know we all think we've been, f- been free our whole life. I did. Until I came to Buddhism, I thought my life was pretty good. Till I came to Buddhism, I didn't suffer much Till I came to Buddhism. <laughs> they sort of told me, the Buddhists sort of told me what I didn't see clearly. That my life was ultimately unsatisfactory. I became depressed for two years. But I continued to practice and meditate and read the Dharma and listen to the teachers, and I said, Okay, I can see what I need to do in my own personal life to make my life a little better so I can suffer less. But I would listen to people tell me what they did, and some of the stuff they did I could see wouldn't work for me. So I had to sort of translate it into my own life experience. This is what I need to do. So the first thing I needed to do, as a Buddhist, was to take the five precepts so I could start being a better person. So I started to practice not to kill, not to steal, not to indulge in sexual misconduct, not to lie, and not to consume intoxicants. Sobriety, I said to myself. (laughs) This is how to be a better person? And it is. I figured it out because every time we lose our sobriety, every time we're high, we become stupid. (laughs) And we do a bunch of dumb things and we suffer even more, not less. So I'm practicing these five precepts. Okay, there we go. In fact, the other night, there was a spider in my room. Not unusual. I caught the little spider. I'm taking it down the stairs to put it outside. And one of the other monks that lives in the Zendo where I live says, what's that? I said, oh, it's a spider. I'm taking it outside. He said, where would you find it? I said, I found it in my room. He said, good. He confirmed that taking the spider from my room to putting it outside, was the right thing to do. It was the skillful thing to do because it ended my suffering having the spider in the room and it ended his suffering by me trying to kill it. (laughs) So it worked out fine. So I'm practicing these five precepts and I'm starting to become a better person. And then I am told I should meditate. And I'm going, what is meditation? They say, well, you sit quietly for hours at a time like a frog on a rock and you reflect and you get deep insights into the true nature and only insights I got in the beginning was the true nature of my physical pain it was there all the time my knees hurt my back didn't feel comfortable my mind was agitated but they said this is what you gotta do because this will teach you all sorts of things that are important so you'll be able to end your suffering So I sat there, and I sat there, and finally after a couple years, literally after a couple years, it started to become pretty good. I was starting to have all sorts of supernormal experiences, all interior, just lights and colors and sounds and all sorts of great stuff. And I didn't want to give that up. And they said, no, no, that's not it. You can't stop there. you got to go further. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to give up all this good stuff. Because what's going to be further? And actually, as it turns out, when you go further, there's nothing there. (sighs) So then I had to get used to being with nothing. I'm just sitting there and they say, how you doing? Nothing going on. And then I started to see that when nothing goes on, there's a certain level of peace that becomes apparent that you are there in this very peaceful state. You're not happy, you're not ecstatic, you're just simply being there with what's going on and everything is okay just the way it's supposed to be and that is equanimity and that is peace. And I'm going, okay, I got this now. So you don't want to be happy, you don't want to have wonderful experiences, you just want to be. Now, okay, it takes a long time to understand that it's okay just to be and not have any expectations of all the great things that we've been taught will happen to us if we do the right stuff. And even if you do the right stuff, after you've been alive for a certain amount of years, you realize that's not it either. Because doing the right stuff doesn't guarantee anything except being right. Okay, so there you go. Now they said you got to get a little wisdom. You've, you've seen how this peace thing works. You got the meditation, then you got the five precepts, so you're becoming a better person. But now you under, need to understand three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will free you, that will liberate you, that will make you uh, enlightened. I'm going, really, enlightened? This will make me enlightened. It, absolutely. All you got to do is really understand these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. Okay, first one. Everything changes. you got to figure that out. you got to figure everything changes. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. And I'm going, well, yeah, I can, I can understand that. And they say, no, you don't understand it. <laughs> it's much deeper than you're thinking it is. It means that you are changing. It means that that is changing. It means that every time you attach yourself to something, you'll be disappointed because it changes or you change. And that's why they keep coming up with new models all the time because we get dissatisfied. We figured the newer model will be the best model. Not necessarily so. And then to counter the newer model, we're always getting older. And all the things we liked before, you can't find anymore. You know, they don't make them, or the business closed, or the music you liked is now called classic rock. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you go out into this youthful world, and all these little millennials are trying to do something with their lives and make something of their life, and you're just going, man, that's what I wanted to do too, and you know what, this is what I ended up with. So once you wrap your mind around everything changes, you and everything else, then you have to come to the next thing. Because everything changes, you're going to be disappointed. Man, isn't that the truth? You're going to be really disappointed because stuff changes. You change. I looked in the mirror this morning. I'm going, man, I don't know if I can take much more of this. It's just sort of the reality that, yeah, you know, you look in the mirror and you got less hair and more wrinkles and, and maybe you lost a little weight. and Now you're going to have to work out every day just to maintain what you got so you don't lose it. And then, then you go, I don't know if I want to do all that work to maintain what I got because I don't got much to work with. <laughs> but there it is. Buddha was so right on, you know, suffering, suffering connected to change yeah okay now now this last thing is really difficult I was talking to Reverend Bonnie this morning about this last thing no self not self not who I think I am never been what I thought I was nothing there. always conditional no independent existence I don't exist in the way I think I do I'm on Facebook I'm the Facebook guy I'm on podcast I'm the podcast guy you know I'm driving down the street. I'm the driver guy. And I'm just thinking, okay, so who am I really? With the real Kusla please stand up? <laughs> and nobody stood up? <laughs> I go, man, okay. Well, I can see how this will help my humility because... <laughs> There's nothing to defend because there's no one there to defend. And then when I look at all the people I don't like, there's nobody there either, so what don't I like? So I'm thinking, okay, I can see that this will allow me to not hold on as tight, not to grasp as tight to the reality I think I have about the world and myself in it. That it is all an illusion necessary to live in a very complicated world but when you start to take it apart you're just a bunch of conditions you're a body and your mind and you have water and you have food and you have shelter and you have clothing and you got medicine and you got a car and you got blah 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 and all those things together combined allow you to exist in a certain way but only for a moment and then some of those conditions will change and you'll be different then and then more conditions will change and you'll be different and I'm thinking Why would that be an ultimate reality? Why would that be really good to think about and to have deep insights about? And then, finally, it dawned on me. Because it helps you die well. No one's going to die. That person you think is dying is just a bunch of aggregates, confused, and about ready to leave and start their next lifetime. So who are you going to call out to to save you from dying? And then you think to yourself, well, you know what? Everybody died. The Buddha died at 80. Jesus died in his 30s. Muhammad died. Martin Luther King died. I'm going to die. It seems to be the one thing we all have in common. (laughs) (laughs) And yet it's the one thing we never talk about. And in Buddhism, we always talk about it. When I was at the Senior Citizen Center in Seal Beach, Leisure World, our best discussions were life and death. You know, they had finished the middle. And now they're all sort of saying, well, how do you be proactive and live a full life at 80? And I'm going, wow, yeah, how do you do that? Well, the first thing you need is a three wheeled bicycle and a flag. (laughs) So I found a nice one on Amazon that I got my eye on. (laughs) But the deal is, you got to stay active. You can't ever think it's over. What are you going to do tomorrow? That's the deal. What are you going to do tomorrow? And you get it all planned out. I've got that planned out. I've been working hard. Tomorrow is my best friend now. You know? Because I'm hoping it will arrive. (laughs) And then give me something to do. For the last two weeks, I've been cleaning my room at the center. Haven't cleaned it for 25 years. I thought it was time. And I'm finding all this stuff. Have you ever tried to clean something you haven't cleaned in a long time? You find all these memories and ideas. And then you start sitting down and reading this stuff and looking at the pictures. And you get nothing done for two, three hours. (laughs) Because you're just lost in nostalgia. And then you say to yourself, well, have you used this recently? And if you haven't touched it for ten years, you don't need it. Just throw it away or give it away. So I'm throwing and giving and it's coming into focus now that that was the life I lived. And now I've got this present moment experience of cleaning and my future will be much simpler because I have gotten rid of a lot of stuff that I didn't need that I used to need. But I changed. So all the stuff that I used to need, I don't need so much anymore. I've got about 400 books. You know what, I don't need them anymore. I got Kindle. (laughs) I need those 400 books and put them in the palm of my hand. I'm going right on. And then I've got all these like CDs, you know, and even some cassette tapes. And I'm thinking, who am I going to give the cassette tapes away? Does anybody have a cassette player? (laughs) Yeah, we got a couple over here, Okay. (laughs) Classic, Okay. And then you got the VHS tapes, you know? Who's got a VHS (laughs) player? Okay, there's, okay. we got it. Now I know who I can give these tapes to. So I'm going through all this stuff, and I, and I realize that at one point, this was me. This stuff was me. This identified me as being separate and an individual. And that separateness and that individuality is starting to wane a bit, starting to just sort of fall away, and I'm becoming one of the group. Me and the seven billion, we're all sort of just doing our dance together, waiting to die. And in between birth and death, we're just making as much money as we can, going to as many movies as we can, driving as many cars as we can, trying to be satisfied, and we're not. And that's the kind of suffering the Buddha talked about. That stuff never satisfies you, ultimately. It's just momentary. And then you want something else, or you want it to be better, or you don't want it to change, and you keep holding on and grasping. That's not it. And I told you I was going to go back and tell you about the Buddha and his family. He did go back. His wife was there. His wife said to her boy, the Buddha's son, go up and talk to your dad. He was very rich. Get your inheritance. It'll all be yours. So Rahula... The son went up to the Buddha and said, I want my inheritance, dad. I heard you had a lot of money at one time. And the Buddha said, okay, I'll give you inheritance. You're ordained. You're going to be a monk. You're not going to need inheritance being a monk. And then his wife was a little disappointed because she had lost her husband and now she lost her son. And she went up to the Buddha and said, what are you doing? What are you going to give me? He ordained her. (laughs) So they all became ordained. They lived a simple life. They all achieved nirvana, ended it in a happy way. And so the Buddha was true to his word. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you when I find what the answer is to suffering. And I'm going to help you and your suffering. And he did by ordaining them. So the Buddha was a human being. He found the answer to suffering. And then he shared for 45 years that answer, how to do it, how he did it. And then to each and every one of us who said to themselves at some point in their life, wow, I'm suffering, maybe what the Buddha did I can do in my own way and end my suffering. And if I can't end all my suffering in this lifetime, at least it'll be a better lifetime because of that. Now, some people think that Buddhism is atheistic. It's not. It's non theistic. Non theistic. Because you know, the Buddha believed in all the gods of India, and they had a bunch of them, a whole hierarchy. But when he asked all the gods of India to end suffering, and they didn't, he realized that there was something that God couldn't do or wouldn't do, that he had to do himself. So he believed in the gods until the end of his life. He just didn't ask them to end his suffering. And he didn't blame them for his suffering. Which is probably more important. He suffered because he was born in original ignorance. He was a human being. He wanted things to be different than they are. And when he died at the age of 80, it is said he went into pari nirvana. Which according to me is existence without birth. Now think about that. Is that a trip or what? (laughs) Because everything on this planet was started by something or someone, and he said, I have found a way to exist without being born. I got rid of the first cause. And because of that, I'm not going to have to die ever again. So he's living right now in his nirvana, He's existing, not in the way we think existence is, of course, and not the form that he used to have, but he's peaceful and he is eternal. And so when I think about the Buddha and his teachings, I think about the last 25 years of my life and how it has changed me in so many good and special ways. And as I go into the last quarter of my life, I am optimistic, I am optimistic that I will suffer less but have more pain. (laughs) And that's just sort of the way it works, (laughs) but at least I won't be suffering. So I want to thank you for coming here today and I especially want to thank you for my birthday wishes. And I've decided in the future not to have a happy birthday, but just to have a birthday. (laughs) Thank you.